upon this nation no 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 I, I don't want you to misunderstand we're not we're not talking about political cancer here although as we all know politics does have a nasty way of contributing to this epidemic by way of ignoring the economic drain upon the afflicted to include the cost of care which they really don't treatment drugs in addition, they have chosen by corporate bribe to ignore the truth as relates to the dreaded dis-ease known throughout the world as cancer. I've been involved with a program for over a quarter of a century, all due to a freak accident which brought me together with one of the modern pioneers in the education of cancer, Dr. William Donald Kelly. And when I first met Kelly, it was via a request to be a guest on my broadcast perspectives on america i'll not tell you the entire story at this point as it's not germane to what we're posting this day what we're going to be talking about however the one key element that kelly taught me was that no one can cure you of any dis-ease if you have a broken bone your doctor can set the bone in a cast with or without pins if necessary but if your body is not healthy the bone will never properly set nor become totally healthy once more. Choose your ailment, heart disease, cancer, arthritis, or many other maladies. It matters not, for it is ultimately your responsibility to properly treat your own disease through nutrition, exercise, and proper supplementation in many instances. Good evening. Jeff Bennett here on a somewhat unusual two-hour health program tonight. And because it's a, what do I mean by unusual? Everything I'm going to be sharing with you over the next two hours is something that I have shared pieces and parts of over the last couple of years, maybe three, four years. I don't know. I've lost track. I awoke after a short sleep in the middle of the night and things began to run through my head. 
And I don't know why. All these things that we're going to talk about today began to go over my head, through my head. It awoke me. And at 4.35 o'clock this morning, I got up. I got everything set to go, and it's been set to go ever since then. And so let us now move forward. What we're going to be sharing with you are a series of articles that either myself or in one other, two other cases, Charles Dickens has written, and we published all on drkelly.net. Why are we going to review them? Because it shows you a pattern, a pattern of the type of things that we see within the health industry in this country, keeping in mind there are no cures for cancer or many other diseases because there's no money in curing anything. Profit. It's interesting how things come back around to haunt you once again. What I'm going to share with you is something that I wrote and I absolutely fell out of my tree when I realized this. It has been over 10 years ago since I had a minor surgery for a hernia. Five months later, I moved into my son's house to begin an 11-month renovation and restoration to prepare to sell the home for his family. What I share with you now is a letter which I sent to my physician while I was going through my recovery. Of course, he laughed his rear end off and ultimately asked if he could frame the letter and hang it in his office. And during that 11 months, I brought myself to the best help I had ever been in in my life. It's now all these years later, but I'm feeling rather poopy. But then you know that. But as I addressed the letter to the doctor, I gave it the title, God, I wish I could poop. Surgery was scheduled on January the 16th of 2014 at 8 o'clock in the morning. As far as I know, that's when the deed was done. For the last thing I remembered after being wheeled into the OR and moving myself to the operating table was having a mask fitted over my nose and mouth and told to breathe deeply. I remember maybe three breaths, and I woke up in the recovery room sometime later looking and feeling as though I'd been involved in a bad bar brawl the night before. Come to think of it, my gut still looked as though this had happened. It was after 2 a.m., the next morning as I began to write what I'm about to share with you. I couldn't sleep. I can't go through the same thing now. But I guess that that not being able to sleep was part of the recovery process as well. Thursday. Considering that I had not eaten since 5.30 p.m. the night before and had nothing to drink for 12 hours prior to the scheduled surgery, I showed up for check-in. Not in the best frame of mind, but the entire staff at the Arrowhead Hospital began loading me up on dope as quickly as they could. Hey, man, I was cooking pretty good. Of course, that was after I was told to strip down and put on that stupid hospital surgical robe, which 
hasn't been redesigned in about two centuries. Hey, man, if you're going to be operating on my front side, what the hell's the purpose of an undersized piece of raggedy cloth? What purpose does it serve that allows the breeze to flow up your backside? I was freezing, man. But thank heaven to the gal who got me started because she found two artist canvases that passed for blankets that had just come out of the dryer. Okay, okay. So from that point, everything seemed to go all right. What little I remember of it. So it was time to send me home. And the phenomenal staff got me dressed and loaded me into my wife's car as quickly as they could. Oh, I was still drugged. But most importantly, I was hungry. So I had my wife hit the drive through at Jacques and Le Box, picked up two breakfast jacks. I figured they'd be light and soft and I could eat those without anything harsh happening to me. I gagged on them. They were so dry. I could not even eat, finish eating one. I saved the other until later, which would wind up being the next day. I just drank some water. The fasting had begun. And when I arrived home, I had a couple of phone calls to make, one to Granny and the other to return a call to my friend Leonard, who had phoned to check up on me. Shortly thereafter, I decided to lay down and get some sleep. I wasn't out long before my son phoned me to see how I was doing. Yeah, that was the end for me. I spent far too much time on the phone with other folks, all the while pacing, slowly, but pacing. I've heard that tempered exercise is good for the healing process. I do not remember what else I attempted to eat that night, but it wasn't much. Maybe a bowl of Jewish penicillin, lots of water, and I began the prescribed meds as the hospital-induced stuff was wearing off. Time for bed, and I was to learn how difficult that was going to be, and then the coughing began. Oh, they weren't heavy spells, just an occasional single hard cough from deep within me. But the first one jerked me pretty hard. And over the next day or so, I began to detect a pattern of when these would probably happen and would prepare myself for them. Friday. I continued to take the meds every four to six hours as required, and also the little orange-colored pearls which were supposed to counteract the constipation caused by the other stuff. They still hadn't as of that writing. Oh, for an Oreo and a glass of milk. But Friday was a bit more painful than Thursday. I slept a lot, somehow managing to awaken each time I was scheduled for more meds. I was urinating quite often. Well, dribbling was more like it. And sometimes every seven to ten minutes. And that would continue for several days. So I began to take a look at some dribbling observations. Water made me dribble. OJ should have made me poop, but it didn't. I appeared to have a slight urinary tract infection, so drank some cranberry juice, which helped me clean out a bit. By Saturday, I felt that I'd been good enough and was willing to try just about anything. So I made a fresh pot of coffee, and within minutes managed a much stronger flow than I had had since the surgery, but... Then, without the coffee, back to the dribble, to moderate. By Monday night, I was so pissed off, but no pun intended, 
and in pain that I drank something I almost never drink. Ginger ale. What in the hell is in that stuff? The resulting flow was not only strong, but it smelled like a barnyard. And then Saturday. I had a fairly painful and uncomfortable day, but still slept a lot. Still paced a lot when I was up, just, just to move the body and get some exercise. Got to see all of my granddaughters, which made my day worthwhile. It was nice outside. So I spent time just breathing the warm air. And then back to sleep. Two specific observations regarding sleeping after this type of operation. Normally, I sleep on my side or my stomach. Well, obviously, the stomach was out, but both Friday night and Saturday night, I attempted to sleep in a slightly different position than the other nights, which were somewhat catatonic on my back, slightly elevated. Both Saturday and Monday were very painful days. Monday was the worst. At first, I thought it may have been due to the sharp cough which I had experienced on each of those days. But as I lay in bed that night, thinking back over the process, I realized that those were the two nights I attempted a modified sleeping position, and each night they caused undue pain and suffering throughout the next day. Sidebar. But while preparing for the OR, there were two bandage braces put on my legs apparently to prevent blood clots. But I would not know what a blood clot would look like or feel like if I had one. But my right leg has been somewhat frozen ever since the operation. I don't mean cold, but, but numb, with little feeling in it. I had my wife massage it several times a day, and now that I'm becoming more mobile, I, I do it as well. It helps for the moment, but there's no real improvement. There could be one other option. And that leads me back to the subtitle of this letter. Since checking out of the hospital on Thursday, I can pretty much sit here and tell you what my food intake is consisted of. I've had three bananas, six pieces of toast, a full bowl of chicken and rice, yes, from Jacques again, although that full bowl was eaten in two sittings, six to eight spoonfuls of noodles, three pieces of pizza, not even good stuff, two bowls full of cottage cheese and fruits, a small bowl of oatmeal, four pieces of bacon, which I stole from my wife's plate, and a half bowl of raisin bran. And I had all that on Sunday night. But now it's 2.53. And I've been at this for 45 minutes now. Sunday night, when I had the half bowl of raisin bran, I couldn't even eat the entire bowl, let alone the cereal. I finally had some bowel relief, but only in the form of a massive release of gas. Sheesh! I could have filled my propane tank for future use. Well, it's now Tuesday morning, and I still feel no relief. Is this... Is this some of this pressure causing the numb legs? I don't know, but I'm so hungry right now that I'm going to the kitchen and going for another bowl of raisin bran. Nothing else seems to be providing any relief. Well, so let's hope that everything comes out all right in the morning, or preferably in about 15 minutes. And unless you've got some suggestions, Doc, that will further assist me in this recovery, I see you all next week. My prescription of oxycodone will be gone by Wednesday, which is tomorrow, and this should be interesting. Well, finally on Monday, I took a light shower. 
Of course, in order to do so, I removed the Velcro support bandage and after showering, replaced the three adhesive bandages on the affected areas. Two of the three units had quite a bit of blood on them, but I couldn't tell if it was somewhat fresh or residue from the surgery or the coughing attacks I'd experienced over the previous few days. But they appeared clean that day. But the pain in that area was quite profound. Felt as if something was folding inside of there. I have great difficulty sitting. How much of this may be the result of a lack of defecation, I do not know. Any advice one could offer would be gladly accepted, Doc. Say hi to Adrian and Danielle for me, and hey, have a great day. God, I still wish I could poop. P.S. It's now 8.04 a.m. as I complete the editing of this run-on commentary, and I'm feeling rather poopy, but still plugged up like a bottle of champagne. As the old joke McQueen told me years ago, abscess makes the farts go Honda. Or as William Shakespeare really said, farting is such sweet sorrow. And as I've shared with you in the past, what I just read to you and just shared with you was something I delivered to the doctor's office several days later after I was able to drive again, etc., probably another week, and left it with, uh, with his gals, Adrian and Danielle, and they passed it along to the doctor when he came in, and he called me the next morning, lapping his rear end off, and said, I have never had a patient write me anything like that before I'd like your permission to be able to frame it and hang it in my office which of course I (laughs) laughingly and gladly granted him that is um, one of these somewhat rare experiences no I was not particularly comfortable with all of this but there was something about my attitude at that point in time that allowed me to write that kind of a letter, that kind of a piece. And yet I begin to look at so much other stuff that I've experienced over the last several years. And then I begin to talk to my friend who's had some experiences that are not so bloody enjoyable either. And then we begin to look at the kind of treatment that we've received from a large number of the people within the medical profession. I've had some doctors that have been amazing human beings that really did give a damn about about us, about me, and the various situations I was going through. I've had our doctors and nurses and physicians' assistants that have been total jerks. And so we begin to approach the so-called Roman approach. Primum non necessity which loosely translates to first, do no harm. That title was the opening line of the oath written over 2,400 years ago by Hippocrates, the pioneer of modern medicine. He was the author of over 70 books on medicine, most notably the patient's treatment, not just the disorder but in tandem with the patient because they were inextricably linked in his mind. My friend Charles Dickens chose this subject because of a couple of encounters that he had had with so-called factory health care. 
And the most neglected part of factory medicine or the business of healthcare is not the patient, but the family. It's not intentional, but like everything in life, we can only attend to a couple of things at a time. It's also expensive to be nice non-participants. I mean, people who do not enable the business financially, of course. You see, we're, 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 we're somewhat easily distracted. We're sidetracked, especially when greed enters the equation. Isn't that right? Avarice seems to subordinate all other considerations in every business. Treating people well will always lose to financial expediency. The factory concept entered the treatment of infirmities when physicians and other medical practitioners realized that, oh, there's gold in them that are ills. Okay, it's a lousy paranomasia. Probably dawned on some MBA that streamlining healthcare practices would significantly increase the profits. So wellness fell victim to greed, and medicine became a business. Then it was Henry Ford, an American industrialist, pioneered the assembly line, revolutionizing the factory production environment. It was the process by which nearly everything is manufactured worldwide, even to this day. I say almost, since a few bestoke craftspeople insist on a personal touch. But the assembly line process or system builds everything as it moves through a succession of workers. Each adds something or performs a limited number of tasks as the item moves efficiently from station to station. In Ford's early business, it took a crew half a day to build an automobile. But his innovation of the assembly line decreased that time to 93 minutes, increasing output and subsequent profits, massive profits. For you see that everything we have or do is a result of this industrial advancement. Everything from breakfast in a restaurant to the computer that I use to maybe write these columns and these articles, including the topic of this particular article. Factory Healthcare owes its profits to the advent of Ford's assembly line and industrialization process. Oh, sure, there's efficiencies in the process, but that's the idea. But every efficiency has a corresponding cost. It may lower the manufacturing costs, may increase output. But the pride in individual contribution and personalization is all loss. In healthcare's case, the loss is in the personal touch, especially where the family, a.k.a. the loved ones, are concerned. Some months prior to Charles writing this article, his wife had required minor surgery to repair a torn rotator cuff. The process is now outpatient surgery. There's no hospital stay. Here's how it works. Pre-check-in. Uh, how will you pay? Then there's the patient check-in. The patient prep, the anesthesia, the surgery, the recovery, the post-op instructions, and the release. Oh, that's interesting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight items. 
and I run through the same exact figure when I had to go in for that hernia. Oh, oh, that's right. The cost for the five hours from start to finish was $96,000 for Charlie's wife. That's $19,200 an hour billed to the insurance company. And yet less than 90 minutes of that was actual surgery. Now, Charlie received five generic and impersonal text messages throughout the entire five-hour process. No personal contact, of course, just text messages. Please note that bill to the insurance company. <laughs> yeah, insurance companies pay a negotiated or allowed amount, not the billed amount sent to the patient. Only unlucky customers pay the total cost. It's interesting. There, 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 there's that, that, that first entry for the pre-check-in. How will you pay? We had to whip out a credit card and pay the hospital six grand for my check-in. Isn't that exciting? What the hell's insurance good for anything? It's appalling. Do you recall the last time you took your car to the mechanic? I mean, maybe you did it today. But isn't that the precise process, except for the anesthesia, which you will need before receiving the bill? Pre-check-in, how will you pay? Patient check-in or car check-in. The patient prep, the surgery, the recovery, post-op instructions, anesthesia to, la to lessen the pain of the payment, and, of course, the release. It's all an assembly line with the same impersonal care and attention. You're just like your car, a defective unit needing repair or adjustment. And these outpatient clinics or surgery centers are nothing more than a shop to process defective people. You're plopped into a chair or on a gurney and you're wheeled through the process from admitting through release. Afforded the same care as a defective car in the repair shop. It's competent and often expert, but not all personal. Welcome to factory health care. Or, as I like to refer to it, Hell care. Of course, the doctor's office visits another endearing product of the profit-driven factory mentality in the industrial business of health care. How much time did you spend with your family physician during your last visit? Timing for the average doctor visit is between 13 and 24 minutes, and most are less than 15. I happened to go to ER to see my doctor yesterday. The appointment was at ten, not ER. This is my regular doctor, and and the appointment was at ten o'clock. They actually took me in ten minutes early. You know, they run your temperature and check your weight and all this kind of crap, and they set you in the office for a few minutes. I guess I was waiting for him for ten minutes. My doctor and I spent close to forty minutes together yesterday because I'm wanting to kind of discuss a series of issues so that I better understand them. And actually came out of there doing very well. I, I, we cleared up a lot of things. But think about this. The panel size of the number of patients that a doctor's practice can manage effectively is about 2,000 people a year. 
Is there any wonder that scheduling an appointment is difficult and the personal time with your caregiver, so-called technician, is limited to a brief encounter? I mean, you expected a callback with the results, didn't you? Come on, seriously. The staff necessary to perform that unprofitable activity is not cost-effective. You need to call and leave a message if you want to know. But in the factory center setting, it's called throughput. Lowering the time with each patient increases the thoroughput and therefore the profit. And so the modern medical practice is a business. Just like everything else in America. They exist for one purpose, and that's to make money. And if in the process they can mend a few defective units, all the better. Well, I know that statement sounds quite cynical, but my friends, considering most practitioners' quality and level of care, it seems all perfectly reasonable to me. There's more analogies in the business of healthcare's factory environment, like medical codes, numbers used by the insurance companies and the service providers, the, the doctors, that describe the procedure are in an excellent simile. Everything from an exam to brain surgery has a corresponding number and an associated authorized parts kit, just like your automobile mechanic. So the next time you visit your auto tech, actually see the flat rate manual. It lists codes and payments for automobile repairs and the associated parts kit. It tells the technician how much time is allowed for the repair and the related cost, and their incentive is to beat the flat rate or work as quickly and efficiently as possible and use the appropriate professional shortcuts. Also, the billing process is computerized, so the technician enters the code, and their system calculates your bill, just like the medical businesses. And you pay the flat rate or acceptable amount for the work. And if the mechanic beats the flat rate, they keep the surplus. This part of the business is behind the curtain, so you don't see it. Well, the flat rate manual was the concept behind the CMS, or Center for Medicare Studies. That's the medical coding system. When your doctor performs the service, their staff codes your visit and sends it to the insurance companies, their claims department, who then decides if the services performed are necessary or authorized, or correctly coded, or justified, or payable to the practice. If denied, you, the insured, are responsible for the claim of the difference between the allowed and the billed amount. And any discrepancy or adjudication or justification is the patient's responsibility and problem. Oh, you're allowed to possibly three appeals to the insurance company, should you disagree. You know, about 15 years before Charlie wrote this column, he had enjoyed a quadruple bypass, and that bill exceeded $550,000. Well, Charlie had made the mistake of driving to the hospital emergency room rather than using an ambulance service. Well, it was obviously not an emergency in the insurance company's eyes since he could still drive. And the insurance company maintained that had he called and requested an in-network facility, and if this had been a valid emergency, they would have paid up the billed amount. 
However, since Charlie circumvented their process, he was responsible for the difference. It was not an emergency because he had made his way to the out-of-network facility on his own. It took Charlie two years of arguments and appeals, and he still lost. And the result caused personal bankruptcy, Chapter 13, to cover his portion of the denied costs. How much did it cost us? Still, about $135,000. And like Charlie said, that's what the hell I get for surviving a heart attack. Well, my friends, Charles' story is one of the thousands created by this factory mentality and the absolute obstinacy of the healthcare business. The immeasurable stress created, stress created by the system's intransigence is incalculable. Imagine dealing with this news while recovering from the trauma. Imagine the stress that it caused for Charles' family. Dealing with an insurance company, the attorneys, the courts, appearances, the filings and depositions, and all the associated stresses that those situations generate. None of which was necessarily conducive to rapid recovery. Oh, and by the way, Charles' recovery was curtailed so that he could maintain a full-time job throughout the process. I mean, after all, someone had to pay the bills. And yet, sadly, that problem was pervasive throughout our society in every business as people cheated the system and the system cheated the people. One must consider the cost of treating the uninsured, the indigent, the homeless, the illegal invaders and the deadbeats, that money needs to come from somewhere. I mean, somebody, somewhere has got to pay for it. You know it will never be the business of health care. Government help? Yes, of course. Our deficit is how much? Pretty damn big. We're climbing. Oh, well. It's just business. But did they do no harm, physically, mentally, or otherwise? Interesting things to consider. What we've just shared with you was originally published on April the 12th of 2022. And um, profound, interesting stuff. And then we discuss a journey to hell and back. And it still comes back to the same approach. First, do no harm. But in my case, they did it anyway. <laughs> Hippocrates says, first, do no harm. In the hospital, the private equity people called emergency room staffing firms. It was all just the beginning, but it was never meant to be the end. September 2nd, 2021, the day we buried our son. Late that night, I got into something, somewhat of a vile argument with my daughter in the manner she was speaking to her daughter, our then 17-year-old granddaughter, who still lives with us and we've been raising for a good number of years, Matter of fact, in about two weeks, she'll be 20 years of age. 
But I told Kylie to go in the house that she did not need to be a part of her mother's asininity and vulgarity, at which point the sperm donor, the child's daddy, jumped my case and started his crapola, at which time I went over to him and told him to stay out of it. Oops. That opened up another can of worms. He started getting physical with me, and as I was returning his actions, my daughter decides to participate in the action, but against me as well. One thing led to another. Within a half hour, I had a minor heart attack. Ah, hi-ho, hi-ho. It's on the gurney, and off to the hospital we go. And frankly, I didn't remember a thing until the next day when I awoke from the event, only to discover a tube had been shoved up my penis with a bag attached to it, something they called a Foley. I would spend several more days in the hospital room and never see the doctor. The schmuck would never come to check on his patient. Oh, you don't remember this story? <laughs> yeah, well, let's just say that I soon became tired of the jive, baby. But while in the hospital, I was introduced to the man who would be my first urologist, but not my last. I tolerated this low-life money grubber, not fully knowing any better for some months until I was referred by Dr. Kennett, my family physician, to another doctor who kept exactly one appointment with me, the very first one. Afterwards, whenever I came in for checkups and catheter changes, he would walk past me and say, Hi, Mr. Bennett. And that was it. The next time he kept an appointment with me, I was on the operating table for service to my prostate. And that was on September 23rd of 2022, a little over one year and three weeks after my so-called heart attack. Eh, like the marvelous song says, having the gila. Why, they, the doctor was about to rake the shekels in. Stage one. Mid-September, I entered the hospital for three days for surgery. The surgery, which never had been necessary of heart doctor number one, had not left the catheter in me. I went in on Wednesday and got out on Friday. The shekel grubber performed ten surgeries that morning, and frankly, he's a bastard who should be stripped of his license. To the best of my knowledge, he caused intense and continual bleeding for all of us. My roommate was probably the worst. The staff at the hospital were so angry with him for what they considered his unprofessional actions. So the next morning, uh, Uranus came strolling through all of our rooms telling us how good we looked and that we would see us on Monday or Tuesday or whatever day the following week to remove our catheters. Well, I'd have been left out of the hospital at the end of day two, except that this a-hole stressed me so much with his dog and pony act and the BS remark that he had spit out that I was moved to a different floor to monitor my heart through the next day. Stage two, Sunday night. I entered the emergency room for excessive blood on the urine. Oh, that catheter was so beautiful. I mean, you know that they keep you in ER for about five hours. Got to keep the dinero flowing. And after two hours of flushing me out with some kind of clear liquid, the catheter was looking pretty pale and fairly normal. So they told me I was in good shape and I could get up off the ER bed and get ready to go home. 
except the moment I put my foot on the floor, I began to instantly flow red once again, at which time they told me, that eh, this is not a problem, and that I was just getting rid of some excess. And I came back the following night, Monday night, and once again on Tuesday. Same story each night, just a different day, maybe different staff people. A different ER doctor, but it was all about to get worse. And so I was released at 9.30 Tuesday morning. Stopped at my own family physician's office as I left the hospital across the parking lot. Picked up my phone and spoke with Brittany at the front desk. Asked her if she could come out to my car for just a moment. She gladly did. I gave her a shorter version of the story that I've just shared with you. With one more stop before I went home to my colonoscopy doctor's office to lock in my appointment with them for some clean out in January, which later, by the way, I postponed and had subsequently had to do that again. I then headed home to uh, return to my work. Partial sidetrack. I got on the computer when I got home for about 20 minutes and I looked at the Foley. It was blood red. So I phoned the office at Dr. Schechelmeister knowing that I would get the answering service. Now, my doctor was not at the local office that day, but was at another of the four offices that he practices at. But the answering services phoned me back shortly and instructed me to get out to the office that he was working at that day. It was a long drive, 20, 25 minutes. Traffic was booking along at about 80 miles an hour, and I kept up, but I just wanted to urinate the whole time. But nothing was passing, just burning like hell. I got to his office, which I'd been to one time before for a urine test back in April. Yeah, drop your pants, and let's see how strong that you can pee into this can. <laughs> yeah, right, which back then I was able to do. And I had told her why, because my urine and my bowels were blocking each other off. Hence, I was unable to do either, and she wouldn't let me go and try to poop. So she inserted the catheter back in me and screwed up. She shot twice as much liquid into the tubes than she should have, which cost me another late-night trip to the ER the next night with an intense infection. My urine looked as if it was full of sand. So they ran a test on it, and then the PA and her nurse discussed in front of me as to whether they should replace the catheter or not. Except that they didn't. And I wound up back in the ER again that night with the worst infection that I had arrived with. But this time I'd wind up with a different hospital than the one which discovered the infection was overloaded that night. So back to stage two. I parked my car. I walked into the building. I was so full I couldn't even pee in my pants, let alone through the catheter. I took the elevator upstairs and walked in. Welcome. Please come sign in. Well, I recognized three of the doctor's associates, each of which had taken far better care of me than he had ever done. No toilet paper in John. Oh, yeah, because I got to go. I got to go. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It became an interesting story. 
what I asked one of the gals to sign me in because I had to go Pizzola. So into the restroom, no toilet paper. I sat down upon the throne. I began to urinate blood, not through the catheter, but out of my penis, which was totally by bypassing the tube. Yeah, well, at least there were paper towels and a brush so that I could brush the toilet, clean it up for the next person. I came back to sit in the waiting room, and within minutes I had to go again, except that now I was getting weak and dizzy. When I came back out of the restroom, I must have been noticeably dizzy and ready to pass out. One of my regular nurses, Monica, said she noticed it in my condition instead of the doctor, Uranus. You better get Jeff on the bed right now. He's not doing well. Within minutes, I passed out and learned later that I peed blood all over the jerk. <laughs> Come on, payback really is a biatch, you jerk. But from that point on, I was totally out of it. I had no idea how long I was out, but the next thing I knew, I was on a gurney on the way to another hospital. Not the one where he had performed surgery, but to another one where an associate of his was to clean up whatever the damn doc had screwed up to begin with. The funny thing is, the only thing I remember being on that gurney is they were removing me from the room I was in and being taken off the gurney when they got me to the hospital. The funny thing is, I can remember everything that happened at that hospital until the actual surgery. And it was good. And so is the doctor filling in for the schmuckmeister. Can you believe that Dr. Uranus had not seen me since the day that that took place? And within a couple of weeks, the catheter foley was removed, and I had had no urinary issues since. But then, and so all that I've just shared with you took place in less than two weeks. But I continue to have somewhat minor heart issues ever since. But the good news is that unto itself, it had nothing to do with the catheter, but much to do with the amount of water which I had become accustomed to drinking while on the catheter. And then step three, September. Early October was over, but something still was not right, and I continued with my in and out, not burgers, my in and out of the ER for the next two plus months, and each time it was due to difficulty breathing. Keep in mind that as a rule, I only go to the ER late at night, as I know many of the people there, doctors, the PAs, the nurses, the cleaning lady. But on one occasion, I went several hours earlier than usual. And they got me into a closed ER room at about 9.30 p.m. on Sunday night and finally moved me about 12 hours later into a somewhat more open ER section of the hospital. But this one was strange. They put me back into a corner, which was in effect a split room with a divider between myself and one other individual. They then gave me an oxygen tube to breathe from, which had now become common for me. Expected to do that for the next two and a half days. At about 2.30 in the morning on Wednesday, I was finally moved into an available room. The nurse was pretty hot, but I didn't really care. Give me oxygen, baby. I finally slept for the first time in days. And by Wednesday afternoon, the decision had been made that I was doing fine, and they must have needed the room and the bed for someone else who was in worse shape than I. So they sent a nurse in to sign me out. 
But this nurse, Fatina, took me down a whole different path than anyone had done with me at checkout. Each time I was attending the ER after the removal of the catheter, I had one thing that had become quite common. Each time a stethoscope was used to check my heart rate, there was an intense amount of gurgling taking place, and Fatini was the only one who understood what was taking place. My internal body was drowning in water. Her advice was to cut way back on the amount of intake. Interesting enough, it made quite a degree of sense to me. And so I did cut down on the water intake, but apparently not enough. On Friday the 13th, of all days, I wound up in ER once again, still due to intense shortness of breath. My wife made a decision to return me to Banner Boswell Hospital. That's the hospital I'd been saved from Dr. Uranus's butcher job. There was no waiting. They got me right into an ER room. I wish to hell that I'd gone there months before. And I was not released until Monday. The water was cut back intensely. The stethoscope was used to check my heart rate on a continual basis. And each time they did it, the gurgling was disappearing to a point where it was gone. And as I many times heard in the old Hollywood movies, Elmer Gantry, in the words of Sister Sharon Falconer, Heal! Heal! And that I had been doing. And I had done more physical work in the week after writing this column and half then than I had done a well over a year and it feels damn good. But over the past year, I'd come in more contact with listeners who were in the health field, licensed MDs and nurses, and you, listeners and readers who had followed my journey. And if nothing else, it had all kept my hopes up. And finally, goodness had come of it all. In this column, I closed by extending my thanks specifically to Dr. Fred Messia. I mention Dr. Fred on the air quite often. My Dr. Southern up in Canada. So many listeners who had stayed in touch with me during this damn fiasco. And for those of you who remember this story, for your part, for your continued support, I openly thanked everyone. That's the second phase of our ongoing series of stories for this day. But after a while, I became tired of the jive. My Sunday morning had been busy working on what I'm about to share with you. It's all been a superb follow-up to my broadcast on the previous Wednesday night, which dealt with the primum non necessity, first do no harm, on April the 20th of 2022. In this column, which is published on drkelly.net under Without Apology, that is the category. It became interesting. And I submitted to the audience that the story would continue. And what I published that day 
with a letter to the Heart and Vascular Center of Arizona on North 7th Street in Phoenix. I gave him the reference account number. We have to go back a little ways, keeping in mind that I had the so-called services of Dr. Edward Evans, MD, on the night of September 2nd, or maybe September 3rd, 2021, due to what I would refer to as a minor heart attack. And then two subsequent appointments at his office. You attach Bill with an insult for several reasons. Now, what I'm sharing with you right now started out as a letter to the doctor in response to the fact that they were billing me for something that I had proof that I had already paid them. And I got so angry that because of their lack of response at the other end of all this, no agreement or disagreement with the things I said. They just chose to ignore it. And of course, I eventually published this on drkelly.net. And as I continued in the letter, to the best of my knowledge, Dr. Evans could not be bothered to do a follow-up in my hospital room during the next several days. And yet Banner Australia Medical Center recommends that I make contact and make an appointment with the following seven days or so. Before the heart surgery, where two stints were put in me, Dr. Evans also had a catheter installed in me for alleged reasons that I had urinary issues. <laughs> I realize we get older, things in our bodies slow up, but I never had a problem relieving myself. Oh, I understand that during surgery, a doctor and his or her staff may not wish to take a chance of being peed upon. So I had no problem with the catheter having been installed at that time, but it should have been removed prior to my being checked out of the hospital several days later. But because of Dr. Evans' short-term nearsightedness, I've suffered extensively ever since. If you people understand a damn thing about catheters, the longer they remain embedded, your body will suffer immensely to the point that one can expect serious breakdowns of your bodily functions, including the possibility of one's bladder. Putting it in simple terms, I continue, for the balance of the month of September after my release from the hospital, I was required to use the services of the ER at Banner three additional times due to the continued issues with the catheter. And those problems continued through the rest of 2021 and still continue through the present time of the writing of this letter. So during one of my follow-up ER visits to Banner in September where my catheter needed to be flushed, a nurse approached me in the room and informed me that she needed to test me for COVID and promptly stuck three swabs up my nose and promptly informed me that I showed COVID symptoms where I was promptly hauled off for a CT scan and checked me into the hospital once more where I shared room with a gentleman from Gila Bend. And guess what? Either one of us had COVID. Oh, 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 and, and I had just had a CT scan by Banner Imaging the day before. And there was no signs of COVID then. As I continued my letter, I flat told the doctor, you money grubbers sure have raked in the money on this fossil illness, haven't you? Of course, then there was one more issue, and unfortunately, I cannot locate the date. But your records will indicate it. Oh, I never could hear it. 
Yep, can't hear. We got some music running. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes, okay? Got to go dance with Kim or whatever we're going to do. No big deal. My God, we've done a whole hour already? Whoa, man. Stay with us. We're going to disconnect, reconnect. I'll be right back. Charles de Gaulle once said, actually, it's difficult to envision in this regard any other criterion, any other standard than gold. Yes, gold, which does not change in nature, which can be made into either bars, ingots, or coins, which has no nationality, and which is considered in all places and all times the immutable and fiduciary value par excellence. So when the question is, why gold? It's simple, my friends. The answer to that question is simply, why not? Like it or not, precious metals will always be the world's reserve currency, even though nations do not define their currency by their worth in, say, gold. Individuals still buy gold and silver to protect themselves from inflation. The more money a nation's central bank pours into the economy, the less value its currency, the dollar is, which means the price of everything else rises. $21 up for a bag of dog food. Seeing that the dollar is cheap, that's why the cost of everything goes up. It's because of the buying power, the value of the dollar is tanked. It's worth nothing. And yet gold that your family would have owned in 1907 will buy at least the same amount of goods, if not far more. William McPhee once stated, it's extraordinary how many emotional storms one may weather in safety if one is ballasted with ever so little gold. The truth about money, gold versus cash in a crisis. Gold, a valuable thing to store. The power of gold in times of crisis. Historical sketch of paper currency. Oh, and beware the Ides of Rare Coin Dealers. And Alan Greenspan's speech on gold and economic freedom. How interesting. I'm going to give you gold and silver in five easy lessons. Seeking out the most efficient and most secure route to owning gold and converting it into widely accepted currency is the next best thing to enjoying gold-backed currency, my friends. In a world of central bankers hell-bent on devaluing our savings, you need to own private gold standard. Contact me, Jeffrey Bennett at Kettle Moraine Limited, by calling our phone number at 602-799-8214. That's 602-799-8214. Find your inner rebel at Dixie Republic, the world's largest Confederate store, located in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. The anti-white, anti-Christ, anti-Southern world ends at the asphalt. Welcome to God's country. Log on to DixieRepublic.com to view our Southern merchandise, from flags to t-shirts to artwork. At the store, browse through our extensive collection of belt buckles and have a custom-made leather belt handcrafted in our Johnny Rebs gun and leather shop. That's DixieRepublic.com, where you can meet all of your Southern needs. Support those that support the network. Support Dixie Republic at DixieRepublic.com. Email ProudSouthern123 at gmail.com and let them know that RBN sent you.
handle the truth. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit republicbroadcasting.org today because you can 